No time to die, no time for film file. You'd be wrong on all accounts because this is the film show for film geeks by film geeks. Roll intro music. What you don't know, dear listeners, is every week, just as we start recording, Andy has to sing the theme tune as our cue to get back in. And if he doesn't, it throws out my intro every, every time. It's now it's now a public service. Occasionally when I'm putting the YouTube clips of some of the deep dives up online, I'll put some of those little moments with me doing the theme tune just like to, <laughs> just to show that this is something that happens. But it, it's now become a habit. I, even if Lee didn't, even if when I had to do that show without you. Yeah. I still did the theme tune for myself. <laughs> <laughs> it's just one of those things. We do it the same with the news as well. We do the, we hum the theme tune <laughs> just so we know we're in and out. Anyway, I'm Lee Ford. I'm Andy Meakin. And this is the film show for film geeks, by film geeks, and we are your resident film geeks. How have you been, Andy? <laughs> I mean, I know I say this quite often about being tired, but I am genuinely exhausted. You've had a big week. Wow, have I had a bad... I mean, it's been great. The past few days at the cinema have been absolutely hectic. It's been the busiest that we've seen. I mean, I know I said a few weeks, about four weeks ago when Shang-Chi came out, wow, it's been really busy. Oh, I was not even anywhere near where we could get to. Bond opened fantastically for us at the cinema. That's good. And I've, I've been working Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night. And so I had the triple bill of the three huge opening days with sold out shows across seven out of our nine screens. And it's been great. On a genuine, genuine level, the reassurance factor of people, A, wanting to go back to the cinema, which we knew there's been an appetite for. Yeah. But, you know, Bond was a, it was a big tester. It was the first film, as we've said, that, that got pulled out of schedule and then everything toppled like a house of cards after that. And there was, there was concerns that, you know, yeah. maybe the delay meant that Bond had fallen out of favour or that, that cinema had fallen out of favour. And we've seen inklings that it hasn't, you know, Black Widow opened big, Shang-Chi's been a massive success, and now Bond being the probably the ultimate tester. And that appetite, you're reassuringly saying, is, is still there. I mean, we'll break down the figures when we get to the news section. Uh, we'll talk a bit more about how it's actually performed over the opening weekend. But... Just visually at our cinema, seeing, and, and it's not just one specific audience. We've seen all ages. We've seen families coming. We've seen children. We've seen young teens coming as a group. You know, th this is young teenagers who you wouldn't think would be the Bond audience because you kind of think that it's our generation yeah. who adore Bond that much. But like groups of like six or 17s coming in because they want to see the latest Bond adventure. We've seen, I've seen like the our generation and our our parents' generations coming in and I've been sharing discussions on people's preferences of Bond and like what's your favorite Bond film because when I've been talking to some of the customers said, like who've been saying like oh have you seen it it's like yeah I'm the only person the only person in the cinema who's seen it so far I went in first thing on Thursday morning to catch it before I started my shift and I was just like I've been biting my tongue all weekend because I can't drop any spoilers for the team and then everyone's like oh you're a big Bond fan it's like oh you you couldn't even 
stop me if you start to be talking on this. And then, oh, what's your favorite Bond? And then we just get discussing like on Her Majesty's Secret Service, Goldfinger. And it's been great having that interaction with the customers. Uh, we've had feedback from customers online as well, saying that they've like they've been in this past few days and found the atmosphere fantastic and everyone really enjoying yourself. Oh, and when you're as hectic as what we were with queues to the door, etc., and yet we're still all all smiling, all getting into it, and all having an absolute blast at work. And it's been great. And, you know, a big shout-out to my team at um, Light Cinema Sheffield. I very rarely mention which cinema I'm in. I normally just say that I'm from a cinema. But I'm going to say Light Cinema Sheffield, you guys who've worked with me this past few days, have been excellent. You've demonstrated exactly what we as a company want to demonstrate. We are a vibrant company. We are excited about films as what the customers are. And it's been a marvellous, marvellous three days. I have worked long hours. I worked a 10-hour shift on one day, 11-hour shift on another, and a 10-hour shift on the third day. I walked home from work after two of those shifts, four and a half miles, and yet I still feel alive. Uh, Last night at work, everyone else was starting to flag a bit. And I'm still like buzzing and pumping and like getting all energetic around. And like, like da, da, da. And everyone's like, where are you getting this energy from? I was like, I don't know, but I'm loving it. <laughs> um, I know where I got some of me buzz from and buzz and pep from last night. Yeah, it because... wasn't it wasn't something illicit, was it? You're going to tell me. <laughs> something no, uh, the counter. it was because I had a run in with a musician who I absolutely love. Oh, right. uh, so John and Laura McClure from Reverend and the Makers, the Rev himself, were in oh, the building. Okay. And I was stood at our ticket checking point, and I just caught a glance out the corner of my eyes. Someone just go, just go to the toilet and walk past. I was like, that's the Rev. <laughs> and everyone's like, what? And I was like, it's Rev from Reverend the Makers. Like, are you sure? And I turned around and saw Laura stood in the foyer. I was like, yeah, there's Laura. And so I waited for him to come back. And I've been, to- I've been told this a few times by people who I know that apparently he's a really nice bloke. And I've what I've I've chatted with him like via web chat when he's done his live broadcasts over lockdown and things like that. And he genuinely feels like a genuine guy. So I just thought, you know what? You'd always feel nervous about going to see someone who you like absolutely love, like anyone who you look up to and you love the music of. You feel that like you're gonna intrude on them if you go over. But I was like, no, I'm doing it. I'm going over and saying hello. So I just went over to them and just went, John. Uh, can I just say, huge fan, thanks for choosing the light to come and see your film. I assume you're coming to watch Bond. And got chatting to him. He was just like, yeah, mate. Oh, thanks for being your fan. Da, 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 da. I was like, look, I came to your gigs. I watched your stuff during lockdown. You kept most of us sane. You and other musicians who did this were great. And he was just genuine in like his appreciation for it. And then I went, anyway, you better go watch your film. So I walked off. A minute later, I get a radio call to go back over. And I go over. He booked for the wrong day. Oh, no. he, he booked for the Thursday just gone. And obviously, sold out shows across the board. So I was like, oh, mate, I'm not sure I can do anything for you, but let me see, let me see. And I went round to the tills, and there was literally two seats left, not together, scattered in the screen. So I ran them off for him, went over, and just went, look, there you go, get yourself in there. You can't sit together, but at least you can get to watch the film. And he was so appreciative and like, mate, mate, oh, that's fantastic. What do we owe you? I was like, you don't owe me anything. Get into that screen. Enjoy your film. And the buzz that that left me with. At the end of the show, he came to me and like thanked me again and basically said that I can get put on the guest list for tickets uh, oh, next time to the touring. He's a lovely bloke. Having a chat with him, just it, everything that people have said about him is true. He genuinely does care about his fans. He is there to just like, he, he, he 
loves when people tell him how much his music means. And it was great having a chat with him. Oh, that's good news. It's great to meet your heroes. It put me on a proper buzz all night. I was just going around going, I've been chatting to the Rev. <laughs> I've only been disappointed a couple of times with the people that I've met. Um, and I've met the majority of my heroes. Um, but it's only been a couple of times. But when it, when it turns out and it's a success story and, and uh, yeah. you know, the people are genuinely, genuinely interested. And it's, it's hard. You know, I find it really difficult. And I'm surprised. I'm, I kind of brim with confidence, as you know. Yeah. And after a gig, and nothing to the extent of, you know, being famous, but I find it really hard when people are incredibly appreciative mm. and want to talk. And I, I get very tongue-tied. I'm, I'm a little bit humbled when people say, that was fantastic. When we played a recent show in Birmingham, we had such a fantastic response. People wanted to come out and talk afterwards. And I... I find it really, really difficult, and, and not in a not in a, an egotistical way. I'm I'm so humbled that people like what you do and want to talk to you about it. And and I'm, all I can do is is be grateful. But I find it find it really hard. So, uh, a, a friend of mine who is particularly famous and had lots of number one records is very shy. And when we go out for a drink or we were out and he gets recognised, people think he's a little bit arrogant. But it's because he's he's so shy that it comes across as he's not interested. He's always grateful, but people said, "Oh, he's, he's not very engaging," and he's just ridiculously shy. And it's and, and I totally get it. And it's so difficult sometimes to to receive praise, as, as odd as that sounds. Is this by any chance the really really famous person who you know from your school days whose vinyl album I've got signed on the wall behind? It's me? not actually because he's the other one <laughs> inclined. No, it's from a, uh, from a, another Sheffield band, um, a three piece. I'm, I'm going to leave it there. Yeah, because he was another one of those experiences that I had through working in the cinema where I got to meet a hero. And He's exactly as you expect him to be. For for, for that one, because that vinyl is an original. It had the R price sticker still on it oh, when right. I presented it to him. And I passed it over and said, look, I'm a huge fan. Can I just ask before we go into the screen, can you just sign this? And he was like, oh, yeah, sure, sure. And he like, passed in the marker pen and he looked at it and just went, still got an R price sticker on it. How long have you had this? It's like, since it came out. <laughs> and then as he's taking out the sleeve to look at the condition, I was like, don't drop it. And he was like, I'll buy you 50 more ones. And I was just like, mate, you are fantastic. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's exactly he's exactly what you see on the tin. And, and that's, that's it. I mean, sometimes like if, if someone's, I mean, I'd be the same. If I got into a position, if any of our fans of this show, I've had a couple at the cinema, um, oh, customers fantastic. who come in and said that they listen to us and I don't know what to say and it's like oh uh, yeah you're humbled aren't you they're like uh, oh yeah I was listening to you one about this last week and it was absolutely fantastic I'm like uh, okay thanks I'm glad you like it thanks. yeah it is that's <laughs> all, all you can say I can understand when people um, are, are in slightly you know thrown by meeting people and and the responses that they get that segues actually just quickly onto um so regular fans of the show might have noticed a slight difference to the show last week on the podcast. Yes. Well, I only discovered it yesterday. I will go back and discuss my week, which is entirely different to yours. Uh, but yeah, somebody made a mistake in the edit. <laughs> oh, no, the edit was all fine. Um, it's just that somebody made a mistake when uploading which version of the edit to, to upload. Oh, right. uh, so those of you who listen to it on the podcast, the radio people didn't get this because they have the edited down version. And you got a slight glimpse last week 
into how my editing process works. Because what I do is I do a first sweep edit, which is where to get rid of all the the diversions from the topic that we're talking about, to get rid of all the occasional belches or ums and errs. And swearing, the occasional swearing. The, the occasional <laughs> swearing, the distasteful jokes, um, the moments that we have to break because someone's dropped a parcel through the door or something like that. Anything that isn't a natural flow of the the show there's also many times that either of us start saying something lose our train of thought and it ends up gibberish so it's like how do i correct that (laughs) so i'll go through and do this first sweep but as you know we go out on the radio on no barriers radio which you know it's no barriers radio from last week's episode because you heard that at the start so we record different variations on a few moments of the show we record the intro twice we record the midpoint twice and occasionally we'll drop in other things that will be either just for the radio or just for the podcast. Now, when it comes to the edit, I go through and because I've got to get the radio version down to an hour, I leave a lot of blank space gaps between things that I could cut. So obviously the intro, we get the Nobody's Radio intro, then we get a small little pause of 10 seconds and then our own intro. So I can see it on the edit and go, there's a gap remove that there's a gap remove that and then during the news there'll be loads of little gaps it's like well this news item isn't essential so i could probably drop this or on a news item we go off on tangents we leave it in for you podcast guys because we know you love the chat and banter but on the radio is it essential to have us like joking and being flippant all the time not necessarily so we'll have gaps so throughout the episode there's loads of little gaps and it helps me when it comes to i get the main show together and then go right get this down to an hour it's 10 minutes there remove that there's five minutes there. Remove that. Okay. There's two minutes there. And I'll just cut chunks out and then squash it together. You heard the phase one pass. You heard the version that has all the gaps on. I'm not sure how far you got through it. You probably got to like the fourth gap in the episode. Went, what is wrong here? And stop. So just to let you know, I've now uploaded what you should have had last week on the podcast. It's replaced the original one. And it will enable you to actually listen to the actual flow that we have. It was one of them that I I don't know how it managed to link the wrong one when I uploaded it. But as soon as Lee brought it to my attention, because Lee listens back through the show once it's being edited. I listen to it like three or four times whilst I'm editing it. So by the time I upload it, I'm pretty much done with listening to it. Yeah, Um, it becomes noise, doesn't it, after a while? You don't (laughs) listen to the detail, you just listen for the problems. I hadn't picked up on the fact that the wrong one had uploaded. Um, so it took a few days because uh, Lee's been a bit sidetracked this week. Yes. He normally listens to it within like the 24 hours of it going up. And so it took a few days. So if you listened to it in those first few days and gave up because it sounded like a mishmash of strange ideas, go back and re-listen to the show because I'm actually quite proud of the end result of last week's show. There was a really good Bond discussion that we had as well as quite a lot of like entertaining diversions throughout it. So give it another shot. And also if you're on Spotify, there's a new thing that Spotify have added that I only realized when I uploaded. You can add polls or questions onto your podcast oh, for people to respond to on the app. So there's a poll on there at the moment, which is running for another day or two. There is a, who's your favorite Bond character. And what I'm going to do is for each episode going forwards, I'm going to put a different poll on and see what result, results we get. And occasionally we will draw reference to them on later episodes to say, okay, our poll came in and we saw this. Fantastic. Oh, oh, that's cool. I like that. I mean, that's basically how Twitter works. <laughs> yep. It's just poll after poll. <laughs> What's your favourite horror movie from the 80s? Is usually <laughs> the main one I get. So, yeah, I, I discovered it yesterday. Now, as Andy said, I normally listen to the show. I listen to it while I'm driving into to work. Uh, and it fills the hour in a bit perfectly. But I've been a bit crook. I mentioned last week that I had an operation. So, 
had that on Monday. Um, so without going into details of what I had done, um, it was a it was a bigger operation than anticipated. I said to Andy, "Look, I'll come and see. I'll come and see Bond with you on Thursday. I'm looking forward to it." After the operation, which started a little bit late because I uh, I had incredibly high blood pressure. I think it was down to, to nerves more than anything else. And it's been a bit of a stressful. It had been a bit of stressful with worrying about petrol yeah. <laughs> here in the UK. Yeah. It's a high Salt Still Lake City, on. by the way. Um, <laughs> We, uh, it, it, everything sort of accumulated with, with this operation on Monday and it took all day. Found out, and I've, I knew previously, but found out again, too much to my horror, that I have a, a, a tolerance when it comes to uh, anesthetic, that it runs out, worked through my system incredibly quickly. So I had probably enough anesthetic to knock out King Kong <laughs> and uh, it must be, it was either the adrenaline, I've, I've done some reading about it, and it's apparently it's a genetic thing to do with Vikings. If you want to read it more, it's, it's out there. And um, so anesthetic runs through me, so I had more anesthetic than I than I should have had for, for the operation to carry on. But so constantly checking my blood pressure, I ended up coming home being very poorly uh, and was given two weeks to uh, uh, to recuperate as opposed to what I, am, I just imagined from everything I'd read about the operation, three or four days, but two weeks. Yeah. So the first few days, um, very, very poorly, um, not feeling my best in any stretch of the imagination. And to the extent where I've not even been able to watch anything. Uh, I've not had uh, the, the, the drugs that I've been on uh, a bit wee after that, wee <laughs> after a few of the drugs. I just couldn't have an attention span and I, I couldn't even, I couldn't hold a sentence, he says, after a dramatic pause. So I finally watched some TV yesterday and a little bit this morning. And, and that was my interest. I managed to catch Free Guy, which landed mm -hmm. on Disney Plus, uh, which I'm going to talk about a little bit later uh, when we get into the news. Because I'm sure we're going to be talking about streaming services at some point. Yeah. Managed to watch uh, a film that was going to be my neat thing, but I now have an, another neat thing, which was a Ben Stiller movie, uh, The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. Mm -hmm. Even though I've seen it a hundred times before, which was perfect for me because I can't really hold my attention on it. What a splendid film. What an incredibly uplifting movie. And I remember getting pretty mixed reviews when it came out. Mm. And, and I've seen it a few times. Uh, once on a plane. I don't think I saw it at the cinema. Um, but I was really bowled over. I think it was the uplifting film that I needed. And then this morning before we started the, the pod, watch some of Amazing Spider-Man 2 with, with my son. And you know what? That film gets lambasted for a lot of reasons, and some of it deserved, but it's a good-looking, and certainly the first half of the movie, it's a great Spider-Man movie, which in yeah. some ways is better than sort of the Marvel stuff because it deals with quite big issues about who you are. I know it's convoluted, or the plot's all over the place, but the look of it, the scope of it, is pretty good. And and I, I've got some... New, some newfound love for it. I always had for Amazing Spider-Man. I, I think it, again, uh, had its problems. And I don't think it was anything to do with the director. I don't think it was anything to do with the cast uh, and, and the style that they went with. I think it was clearly studio interference. Yeah. And, I, and I think this suffers from it. But yeah, I was really bowled over. So an odd week for me. I haven't had a chance to see Bond. Hugely disappointed. I think this is the first time as an adult I've not seen either a, a press show for Bond or uh, or Bond prior to general release this must be the very first time ever and i find it very odd that we're going to be reviewing a film that i've, I've 
I would have seen on, on day one. I yeah. find that really odd. So that's me for this week's show. What have we got? Well, of course, Andy is going to be doing his review of No Time to Die. A spoiler-free one, so don't worry. Andy, what else have you got? I've also got my thoughts on The Guilty that had a limited cinema run over the past couple of weeks and has now landed on Netflix. And also the first of this next wave of four Welcome to the Blumhouse films for Amazon, Bingo Hell. Andy and I'll also be doing our review of What If. Our deep dive this week is a sci-fi classic, The Forbidden Planet. But before any of that, of course, we have, and we've got to hum the tune before we go in, we have the news. <laughs> I might actually keep that in this week. <laughs> yeah, go on. <laughs> so, Andy, opening week of Bond, what are the box office figures looking like? I guess that's the ultimate, the big question for this week. So, the box office this weekend. Oh, we have a triple whammy of box office pleasantries. <laughs> I don't know how to follow that one, Andy, but uh, we're going to get into uh, a little bit of a debate, no doubt, over one of the films that's doing remarkably well. But carry on. I don't want to I don't want to uh, uh, force your hand at this stage. Well, let's start with the one which has directly affected us. So Bond, No Time to Die opened this weekend. And it's opening figures. It's only opened in a dozen or so territories worldwide so far. It's still got to open in China and the US. So expect bad news. That bad news is that on a budget of 250 million, it's only made 119.1 million so far in the opening weekend. Okay. Wow. Did I say bad news? Sorry, I always <laughs> get confused between bad news and, oh my goodness, that's a box office record just been smashed so uh, Sandy, just quickly before you go on uh so the uk territories which are the territory uh, you've said it's not opened in in the us and china yet but where has it opened to earn that phenomenal figure it's opened in pretty much most of europe and a few other international markets i don't know the full list but it's not done it's it's not fully out there yet okay but 119.1 million. It puts it on par with skyfall's opening weekend in fact i've read that it's suppressed Spectre, and yes. it's very close, nipping at the heels to Skyfall. On the international opening, it's on par with Skyfall. On the UK only, it's close behind Skyfall. It's better than Spectre, but it's done 25 million in the UK so wow. far. That is phenomenal. That is unprecedented in these times. It's pretty much unprecedented in times before COVID. So this is a proper return to cinema. Bond has shown and we'll be talking about it later in the review. Well, I will anyway, because you've still not oh, seen no, it. No, don't. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it is a proper return for Bond, and it shows that audiences are ready to come back to the cinema. We, we mentioned at the head of the show that I've seen a huge wealth of customers of all ages coming in to the cinema this weekend. It's been marvellous. So that's one good story. Good news for the... Uh, good news for individual cinemas, good news for the industry in a whole, uh, and good news yes. for the Bond franchise, because for a 50-year franchise, 50-odd-year yeah. franchise, to keep that keep that strength, to keep going after so long, keep that, that brand recognition where, you know, others have failed, others have dropped off, and there have been highs yeah. and lows with Bond, as we know. But, you know, just to keep, keep it going and, and finding new audiences, because it has to, in the age of, yeah. of Marvel, the age of DC, where, and we, we, we've mentioned this, there, there is a, a, a certain style 
Bond has to work within that style, and it, and it's done so in previous movies. It jumped on the you know the kung fu phase with uh, a man with a golden gun and and black exploitation phase with live and let die, but it has to stay current and and it seems to be doing it remarkably. It's it's, it's great news for all concerned, and when when I say all concerned, lovers of cinema. Yep, Dune, which we will get to see in the in about two weeks time. Wow. That only ha- it's only opened in a, some select audiences so far. Some countries across Europe, in particular, where the Dune novels and style has always been a huge seller. Which I'm thinking France, particularly. Yes, this this is clever marketing for the film because they were worried that people wouldn't latch onto it, so they've gone to the markets that they know will get the buzz first to generate the hype in the markets that it might have struggled to find an audience. And I'm hearing people hyping about it now. Yeah, I mean, the buzz has been superb. It's not just been, this is a great-looking movie. This is yeah. a, a game-changer of a, a visual movie. Well, Dune had a budget of $165 million, and it's already recouped over $100 million of that after this weekend. Okay, so even if it was to do so-so business in the States, then that would yeah. recoup enough of that budget on a on a on a modest uh, a modest opening weekend yep which as we've reported before it appears that warners would be quite happy to have a small loss on this but it's looking like it's not going to have a loss in the end it by the end of its run this should easily have cracked past 300 400 million and what does that mean then for a china opening i'm assuming it's got a china opening it has. This is one of those rare films that's actually getting released in China. This and Bond are both opening in China. Uh, the China opening, this could this could go crazy. This could push it past the 800 million in the box office. Because we've seen on the reportings on sites like Box Office Mojo this year, the films that have only released in China alone have made between 600 to 800 million. Wow. So target market. It's a it's a compact market. So fingers crossed on this one. We'll be reporting on it, obviously, as it gets in, released into further markets. But this is boding well for getting to see that second part of June and maybe even the third part, Children of June. Fantastic. Who knows? It's 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 almost a sense of relief, though, isn't it? I mean, again, as I've just said with Bond, it's that expectation that, that Bond could have gone either way. Yeah. You know, it's it's a it's a sense of relief. People came back for Black Widow, came back for Shang Chi, clearly have come back for Bond, and are looking to come back for Dune. It's it's everything we'd hoped for, kind of a year ago when we were we were concerned. It genuinely feels to us in the cinemas at the moment that we are back to normal levels of business. Right. This past weekend has been the busiest that we've been since Endgame, right. and so we are. We are hoping this carries over and we're seeing really strong bookings for next weekend. So I think that we are now on that nice end of year run where it's just going to keep strong and keep going and cinema is back. Yeah. And then we get to the third bit of news. <laughs> and this is the one that this is the one that part of me hates this, but another part of me, for business reasons, thinks it's absolutely marvelous. The Venom sequel, the one which features that awful awful character that people overhype carnage made 90.1 million over its opening weekend in the u.s when i saw this andy i i thought of you and i thought of your (laughs) suffering um but you know what the reviews have been pretty pretty okay with it nothing outstanding uh clearly the the pre-reviews that i've read have, have said it's a better film than venom which is not that difficult 
Um, yeah, I mean, you, you could have just thrown Venom at a wall, chopped it into bits, <laughs> and put it through a blender, and it would still be a better film. But, you know, it's it's had, had decent reviews, and I put that down to character recognition and the fact that Andy Serkis is behind it. And I've said that the saving grace for this film would be Andy Serkis, who would get kind of, would clearly get the effects side, because he's become the go-to guy for, for CGI character work. But he's a good storyteller and he's got a British sense of humour. And I think it, uh, alongside Tom Hardy, that's a winning combination. And he's got more of a vision. And this is his first major uh, studio movie mm. as a director. So he's got, he's playing, a, a, even though he's recognisable as an actor and we know the work that he's done and we know that he shot a, and directed a couple of movies. This is a big studio movie for him. And he's and getting into that game. He's going he's gonna to fire on all cylinders the best he can. We know yep. that Sony will be heavily involved in the uh, the production and post-production of the film. I think that's why it's only got a 90-minute running time. Yeah. I don't think it's anything to do with Circus. I, 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 I honestly believe there's a longer version out there, which we might see uh, as, as a Blu-ray. But, you know, un- until I see it, the proof is in the pudding. Um, but but good news. But it's 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 good news for the for everything else, you know, People coming back into into the theaters, whether it's a film that that we're going to applaud or not, just means that there is there is that appetite. The nineteen point one million that it's taken means that not only is it the biggest domestic opening since the pandemic, but it's also beat the opening weekend for its predecessor. So it's this sequel is already ahead of it. Now, whether it's going to be a top heavy film and this is just like fan expectation of the fans of the first one all rushing out on the same weekend, we don't know yet. We'll have to watch second weekends to see. But on the 90 million budget, it's already made its budget back. Yeah. So this is this is easy going to, going to go into profit and it's still got to come out in a lot of international waters. I know we're not in the speculation game, uh, but, you know, your your dislike of the Carnage character, but is is a cult is a cult classic character beloved by a lot of era fans. Kids. So, you know, that, that, that character recognition is, 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 is clearly part of the payoff. It's one of those characters that I think is popular because a generate, I mean, we were in our adults, adulthood when this character was created, we were both like aging as comic book readers and started to, it, it, it was that 90s era when Marvel was just throwing everything at the wall and seeing what sticks. I think it's the younger audiences, the maybe not comic book readers, but the people who watch the animated series yeah, who love character characters like Venom, who love Carnage, because the animations make them kind of better. I mean, this is why Gambit is such a huge fan favorite character, because of that X-Men. Yeah. animated series yeah. and i've never got the love for gambit that loads of people have because i read the comics and thought ah, he's not the most interesting x-men he's not even in the top tier of interesting x-men he's quite low down but you know there's an audience out there clearly now it's not all good news for the box office adam's family 2 the animated sequel has flopped in the u.s okay i thought that might have found a found an audience but is that because it's it's been released two weeks too early I think it might be the fact that it's gone day and date to streaming. Yeah, that Do we we see a pattern here? Do we see a pattern? That the three films that have done really well and above expectations are all ones that are exclusive to cinema. And the one that hasn't, which should have had a market because the first one had a market and did really good once it went to home release, that should have generated more of an audience for the second one, has done nothing. Maybe Mm -hmm. it's a pattern. I don't know. Who knows? But 
we could speculate until the end of the world. But we'll we'll review Adam's Family 2 next week because it opens in the UK this weekend. Is it um, a split release in the UK? I, no, we've got a cinema exclusivity. Which might help <laughs> our yes. argument constantly. I think it will play well over the Halloween period yeah, as well. Yeah. Once we get to the half-term holiday, it's one of those films that people will then come in to see. Although it will be fighting for space by then because the next few weeks have multiple releases every week. But it's 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 still an important part, isn't it? You think about it, it's the, the half-term holidays is, and especially this half-term holiday when kids can now get back into the cinema without yep. restrictions. I think there's a possibility it might find its feet more. And I, I don't think it will be tinged in this country by the box office disappointment in the US because I think generally public the public get a whiff that a film's underperforming. Then yeah. th- then it's like uh, uh, they, they pull back every time. Yeah. And I think I don't think they'll get that whiff in, in, in this country with that movie. So news-wise, other than Bond, do we have anything else out there? So... Uh... I mean, this is something that has been on the back burner for a while. Uh, We reported on it when it started happening. But Scarlett Johansson and Disney's lawsuit, there's been an update. Right. Now, I've seen a little bit of this. Um, Fill our listeners in. So over the past week. Now, for those who don't know what the lawsuit was, when Black Widow went to streaming, it was done without adjusting the contract for Scarlett Johansson, who had a back-end deal based on box office earnings. So obviously she would lose out by any loss of earnings caused by it being available on streaming services because she doesn't get the back end on streaming. So she was taking Disney to court to dispute the contract, which she claimed her lawyers were claiming she had tried to contact Disney when the decision was made to get the contract changed, but they refused to acknowledge it. So it caused this whole spark of like Scarlett Johansson versus Disney. And it was all about everyone who gets involved with films having the potential revenue lost through streaming channels not being included as the contracts. And over this past week, there was a couple of developments. First of all, the court date was finally set for when it would go to trial, and that was March next year. And then, within 48 hours, a decision was made behind doors. Both parties have come to an agreement and a resolution. We don't know the details of the resolution. We don't know what they've actually, actually sorted out between them. But both parties are apparently very, very pleased with what the result is. From Scarlett Johansson's own words, I'm happy to have resolved our differences with Disney. I'm incredibly proud of the work we've done together over the years, and I've greatly enjoyed my creative relationship with the team. I look forward to continuing our collaboration in years to come. Now, what's interesting is that when this lawsuit was first brought, Disney was so adamant that, huh, she can try. And their lawyers were like, she's got no case, she's got no case. But they've come to an agreement behind doors that she's happy with, which means that she did have a case. She had a very valid case. Uh, Bob Chapek himself, uh, the CEO of Disney, has commented to say that he looks forward to them continuing to work together. And indeed, Scarlett Johansson is currently working on an adaptation of the Tower of Terror um, theme park ride for Disney+. Plus. Right. So anyone who thought that this is the end of Scarlett Johansson ever working with Disney because she's upset them, that seems to be far from the truth. It seems that they've realised that maybe just maybe they should have considered that streaming revenue would affect earnings. They'd already made an agreement with um, Emma Stone that we mentioned about three or four weeks ago uh, to get Cruella 2 and to give her some more back pay based on what that would have lost. So maybe this agreement also has similar kind of thing. So 
it's good news for both ScarJo and Disney that they've actually come to an agreement, and it shows that maybe Disney is starting to starting to evolve as a company. Maybe the maybe this all comes from the, the how well Shang Chi did. Yeah, that her case was that Black Widow lost money because of the streaming. Then Shang Chi comes along and makes more money than Shang Chi, and kind of proves her point. And that's why they backed down. It's also the repercussions that it would open up across the industry. Yeah. So there is, to some extent, a necessity to put this all to bed because the doors could open to multiple, multiple lawsuits because yeah. Scarlett Johansson, uh, Emma Stone aren't the only ones who suffered because of um, a loss of earnings because of, uh, of, of the release date schedule. So probably for the best for all, all concerned. So I'm glad to hear that. Talking of, of Disney, have you seen this story? Now, it's getting reported different ways depending on the, the news outlet. One is that Marvel is uh, and is suing artists and hairs to, to block the rights from them. So Larry Lieber, Stanley's brother, Steve Ditko's family, all the heirs of the original artists are, are apparently being sued by, now some claim it's Marvel, others claim it's Disney. So to keep their iconic... Uh, characters and uh, not lose them, which would mean an end to such characters as Iron Man, Spider-Man, Doctor Strange, Ant-Man, Hawkeye, Black Widow, boom, all of them. Because due to a statute of limitations, the rights to the characters are up after 75 years. And this happened already at DC with Bob Kane, uh, happened already at DC with Superman uh, and, and Siegel and Schuster. So it's now happening at Marvel and was always going to be on the cards. Now, and as I said at the beginning, this could go either way. Now, people are saying it's Marvel. It's I don't think it is Marvel. I believe it's it's Disney is suing this. So uh, check your check your story lead before you read up any further on it. But what I read first is that those hairs were originally suing Marvel and Disney, and then Disney are counter suing them back. That's my take on it. I've read so many different stories on this, and so many of them reported completely different facts and information. It's hard to decipher what's actually the truth and what isn't. A lot of the articles that I've dug down into and have gone back to see where their sources are, and it turns out it's nonsense. So the ones that are saying that they were Disney were being sued by Kirby's estate. That's et cetera, what I, et cetera. I'd read first, yeah. And it appears that that's not actually happened. No one's suing Disney. And then there's the, like you said, that Disney are suing them. Disney aren't suing them. Disney are just trying to extend the exclusive rights. They're trying to stop this 75-year lapse that happens. And they've done this before because a few of their characters are older than that length of time. Yeah, Mickey Mouse, for instance. Yep. So they've done this before in the early 2000s to retain the exclusivity around their own branding. And so this is just an extension of that to see whether that gets passed. Because when they did it for Mickey Mouse, it paid off. Disney kept exclusivity. They can they can sue people if they start to use the brand. Now, if they don't win, if Disney don't manage to get this extended and get this exclusivity to keep the trademark and the copyright of these characters solely, does that mean that they can't make any Marvel films ever again or comics? No, it doesn't. It just means that everyone can make films or comics or stories with those characters. They will no longer be able to sue anyone who uses one of their branded images. So I would be able to manufacture Spider-Man t-shirts and they wouldn't be able to do a thing because it'd be in the public domain. And it means that the original creators of the estates would also get some rights to get some earnings from their creations. And that's what this main issue is about. It's about the fact that 
a load of the creators, and we've seen this over the past 10 years while Marvel films have become bigger and bigger and bigger, that the creators have not been recognized. Yes, they have a mention in the end credits like, oh, a thanks to da 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 but they don't get money. They don't get any payments, but that's because they were work for hire. Yes. When they created these characters, they were getting paid a wage to create those characters. And that's what the that's what the arguments that Disney slash Marvel are putting into why they should retain the rights and no one is really entitled to earn money off it because these were paid for higher contracts, basically. So there's two ways of looking at this. One is the moralistic way that people like, and I heard this with an interview with Ed Brubaker, who was, you know, was solely responsible for originally creating The Winter Soldier. And yep. of course, had a success with that character since, but received something like uh, $5,000, which is a pitiful amount to say the, the film has made billions yep. worldwide and the character has made millions worldwide. And that uh, Ed Brew Baker, as the inspiration, should get something more than $5,000. I am completely on the side of the creators as far as yep. that goes. If you have a book adapted, like Stephen King book, Stephen King uh, receives an awful lot of money for, for the use of that, that book. I think the same should apply to, to the Marvel creators whose stories have inspired that. They should get more than just a name check. They should get a good, not a, a huge amount of the profit, but a hefty amount that you would give if you were buying the, the, the novel rides. Now, where I'm going to, to differ with that is, A, I've got a little bit of a problem. And I understand that if I was an heir to to what could be potentially a fortune. I think I'd probably be battling court, but it's what it puts at stake, which it puts at stake uh, lots of other people's livelihoods, puts at stake lots of other people's enjoyment of the products and, and it would sell it short. I cannot see, I can see that these guys will get a, a good payout and, and, a, and a deserved payout that I, that I understand, but I don't want greed to be the issue. I think Marvel, have a right to retain their characters they were made they were created for marvel and, and therefore that was the deal if you if you're in the contract and to, to go and work for that company and you create a character then it does belong to marvel it's the same if you made something for doctor who you know you created a a, a character i think there's only terry nation who had an exclusive deal with because of the daleks uh, but, you know, if you create a villain for the for Doctor Who and other writers come along and use that villain, the master, yeah. for instance, it's the re it's the retained rights of, of, of Doctor Who. It's not the retained rights of, of the creator. Yeah. So I think that's how, for me, on a business level, it has to work. It has to work like that. There's a there's too much money at stake and there's too much uh, kudos involved. There's you know, this is a, a, a brand now. Uh, not just a comic book industry. And of course, those original writers and artists, when they started, never knew that Marvel or DC were going to turn out to be these huge entertainment industries. Nobody foresaw it. Even 20 years ago, people was only starting to wake up to to the fact that these characters have, have a life of their own. So it, it's a mixed one. I think morally, they've got to do the right thing. But from a business point of view, they've got to keep servicing the machine because that's what you know, if, if you, you put these characters out into the public domain, then they're not going to be worth anything. This is one of those things that comes around quite often, and it's yes. not just to do with films. I mean, in the early 90s, there was the huge creator ownership aspect that led to people like Jim Lee, Todd McFarlane, Eric Larson, etc., jumping ship from Marvel and DC and set like setting up Image. 
and creating their own characters that they had full ownership of. And even that led to some disputes. Yeah. Look at the look at the fallout between Todd McFarlane and Neil Gaiman over the ownership of Angela, yeah. a character that was introduced in Spawn. That apparently Todd McFarlane claims that because it was on his title, it was his ownership. And Neil Gaiman's like, "You've just gone against everything that you left Marvel for." Yeah. And yeah, it, it's an ongoing thing. There will always be this issue. I do think that the creators should get more pay. Yeah. I do think that if something, yeah, you're a screenwriter. If you write a script and you sell it, and then that becomes a multi-billion blockbuster. Yes, you deserve more money than what you were initially paid for that script. But when you sold it, you sold it on this as a set value. And it's a it's a bad state of affairs. You have to take that gamble. Do you ask for a percentage when you create something or do you just get the money and run? You don't know what's going to be a success. And when these characters were created for Marvel, Mark, comics were just throw disposable entertainment. Yeah, absolutely. They were throwaway junk. Even like when Winter Soldier in the 90s, like 80s and 90s was creating comics, Comic book movies were not a thing. So they, they weren't huge blockbusters. So they were making money for what their wage was. We're in a completely different environment now. And, you know, things need to be adapted for the environment that we live in. And this, again, kind of links into Scar Joe's case that she had. Who knows what's going to happen? Who knows where we're going to be 10 years from now? Maybe 10 years from now, there'll be more lawsuits getting fired out to try to retain ownership rights. We don't know. But we are in a very comic book influenced world these days. Shall we move on? And moving on. So let's move back to day and date releases and let's look at Warners because they were ones who were, well, they were responsible for a lot of upsets with their HBO Max split release streaming option this past year. Warner's CEO, Jason Killer, has spoken about the decision to split release on HBO Max and admits that maybe they rushed things and should have discussed it with the creatives. In his words, I'll be the first one to say, and the responsibility rests on my shoulders, that in hindsight, we should have taken the better part of a month to have over 170 conversations, which is the number of participants that are in our 2021 film slate. We tried to do that in a compressed period of time, less than a week, because, of course, there was going to be leaks. There was going to be everybody opining on whether we should do this or not do this. So he admits that, yeah, they upset a lot of people because they didn't really take it serious enough. Uh, however, despite the fallout, Nolan quitting, War and Warner Brothers have now committed to a 45-day window from 2022 onwards, but he still considers the HBO Max plan to have been a success because it drew subscribers into HBO Max. And from an economic perspective for participants, it was as fair and generous as they believed that they could be. I, I think, you know, if, if you can go back and readdress a problem, then that's fine. I think you have to do that. Let's be honest, it was a... a a unique situation and at the time it felt like a good idea okay it was a, a, an idea that wasn't thought through and we've seen the impact it's had but it had something had to be done otherwise we weren't going to get any new content and as we said with with bond for instance films were going to be sat on the shelf gathering dust running up huge huge uh, expenses down to the interest on them something had to be done and uh, in that particular case, knee-jerk reactions were accepted. Nobody knew how long, and we still don't know, to be perfectly honest, how long the pandemic's going to be carrying on. You know, with everything that's going on in the UK, yes, there is still a pandemic on. You may have forgotten. So they made a, they made a mistake. And, and the, the, the true testimony to that is you go back and you recalculate and you say, okay, we, we've screwed up, but moving forward, this is what we're going to do. Disney did that. Uh, other streaming services have adapted to that. I think it's it's fair to say, moving on. Now, interestingly enough, as I said to you right at the top end of the program, 
I watched, uh, um, I watched Free Guy. No, I did. I was going to say Fall Guy with Lee Majors. <laughs> um, I watched no, Free Guy last night. In the head. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even think I watched it when it was out. Oh, I, used um, okay. I used to love Fall Guy. Oh, did you? No, I was that, every that... Sat- every Saturday night. <laughs> it was that period of American TV. It was like, uh, you know, it, it, self-contained episodes. Anyway, I'll go back. <laughs> <laughs> so I watched Free Guy last night on Disney Plus because it landed on uh, on Thursday or Friday uh, after the forty-five day window. Thoroughly enjoyed it. I'm disappointed I didn't get to see it on the big screen. I think, as I've always said, one of those films. That, that sometimes you have to see on a bigger screen to, to be fully immersed on it. You, there's no distractions. And uh, uh, I'm disappointed I didn't get to see it on the big screen, so I think it was worthy of it. I mentioned to a friend of mine on the phone that I was going to do that. And he went, oh, I, I didn't bother with the cinema, and, and, and now I think I'll just wait for 45 days. That's going to be a bit of a problem because I think people are going to get to the stage of going, you know, like if I wait on a couple of months, I'm going to be able to see it for free on on Disney+. And I think I think that... There will be a time when we, or when I say we, the studios, are going to start readdressing this 45-day window because I think there's always going to be the path of least resistance where people will hold on to the fact, you know what, I don't, I'm already paying for Disney+, Plus. I'll, I'll, I'll see it in, in, a, in a couple of months. Discuss. <laughs> I remember there being discussions, I think it was Paramount who came up with the, this idea of they have the, oh, it might, it might have been Universal, they have the option to release it after 30 days or 45 days, but they don't make that decision until after the opening week so they can see whether or not it needs to go to streaming early. That way, films that would do great business and continuous box office would have the full like nine to 10 weeks of exclusivity. Whereas the ones that... I see it very often at the cinema. You'll get something that has a strong opening weekend and then plummets and on the second weekend nothing and it's it's had all its business in the first week those kind of films would be the ones that would benefit from a swift move over to streaming to recoup some more money put it onto a premium streaming first and then shift it across so i think we're going to start to see a fluctuating release window i don't i mean even disney themselves have said that shang chi is going to streaming for free after 70 days now Not the 45 days they initially said. We mentioned this last week that they said 70 days. That suggests that 45 days they will start, they will do a premium streaming charge to get some money back. So you still get given that choice of like, yeah, you can't watch it for free. You still need to pay for it. Cinema or on the streaming channels. It's one of those things where it's all going to fluctuate, isn't it? And Yeah, we're going to see it a lot over the next 12 months. I mean, Nolan, we know, has asked for a 100-day window on his films with Universal, and they've accepted that. So there's not going to be a set 45 days. I think I mean, Bond is demonstrating it. Bond is a spoilerific film. If you are willing to wait 45 days before that film comes out so you can watch it for free on streaming, then you are not that much of a fan of the franchise anyway, and you don't care because... By that time, you will know the details of the film. I'm already dodging spoilers for Bond. Oh, they're everywhere. They are everywhere. Do not go on Twitter. No. Do I'm, not go on Twitter at all. I'm not looking or discussing anything about it. I wanted to come into it fresh. And, and uh, you know, I put YouTube on this morning. Um, and there was already two or three. The ending of, of Bond Explained or, yeah. you know, no thanks. I'm, I'm, I don't want to know. And I, I will hold out. So, yeah, as I said, I think we're in a, a fluctuating uh, series of events. 
uh, initially a knee-jerk reaction to what was happening across the world, but it will start to settle down. And I think we, we said that more than once yeah. on the show. Right, I've got a little bit of news off the what back end of that. This is a dramatic pause to uh, edit out later, Andy. Just <laughs> Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> <laughs> We've heard that the Russo brothers, along with Noah Hawley, are producing a heist film for Netflix. Anyway, Regé Jean Page has joined the cast. A lot of people thought that he was going to be uh, the next Doctor Who. Many people thought that he was going to be uh, the next Black Panther. But apparently his next role is going to be this heist thriller from Netflix, which we think we mentioned the other week. Yes. Not really much more to add on to that one. But we have got other casting users. So the Wonka musical has cast Olivia Coleman, Sally Hawkins, Rowan Atkinson and Jim Carter, who are now going to star alongside Timothy Chalamet in this new musical prequel of Willy Wonka's like origins. Oh, good also on also on board are Matthew Benton, uh, Tom Davis, Simon Farnaby, Rich Fulcher, Matt Lucas, Keegan Michael Key, Ellie White, Natasha Rothwell. So many names in what is lining up to be a star-packed feature from the Paddington team of Paul King and Simon Farnaby, which those names alone. The name Paddington being um, anywhere bandied near a project makes me go, oh, this looks exciting. It's going to be a prequel to the famous Roald Dahl story. Uh, Neil Hannon of Divine Comedy is penning the music for it. You know, the more we talk about this, the more intrigued I am about it. Initially, we thought, yeah, you know, cash in. But with with those sort of people involved, and especially, as you say, the Paddington folks, then it's already a must-see for me. Ridley Scott says that Gladiator 2 will be ready to go after he's finished his Napoleon movie. Oh, do we need a Gladiator 2? I mean, it's been, what, nearly 20 odd years since years? it came out? Yeah, I think I saw it back in, I think it was 2000, and, 2000 2001. Two, I yeah. So I, I think we should move on from this, Ridley. I know you, you for, at 83, you're a busy, prol- prolific filmmaker still, but does the world need a Gladiator 2? Yeah, I mean, and how would it play? I mean, would it be a Gladiator 2 direct film, or would it just be another film set in the gladiatorial arenas would there be any link between them we don't know any details we don't know who's going to be involved but i'm not convinced but then again when it comes to ridley scott even when i'm not convinced on the initial stages of his projects i kind of get interested as he starts to develop them yeah yeah so i'm curious i'm not convinced but i I remain to be convinced Uh, Okay, we've been talking about Stephen King a lot over the past few weeks because we're back onto a run of Stephen King things happening. Um, Let's look at Salem's Lot again because they've scored its priest. Father Callahan has been cast. Uh, John Benjamin Hickey from Sublet and The Good Wife has been cast in the role of the alcoholic priest in the town of Jerusalem's Lot who has his faith tested by the arrival of the sinister vampire Kurt Barlow. Uh, As we've mentioned previously, the cast... Already has the lineup of Alfrey Woodard playing Dr. Cody, Mackenzie Lee as Susan Norton, Bill Camp as Matthew Burke, Spencer Treat Clark as Mike Rayerson, Marilyn Bush as Eva Miller, Kellen Rood, Floyd Tibbetts, Pillow Asbeck as Richard Straker, and William Sadler in an undisclosed role. Ooh, that's interesting. Could he be Barlow? Possibly. I think he'd be a great Barlow. I'm, I'm looking forward to this, as you know. I just hope they don't go. I hope they go the it route rather than the it part two route yes yeah i completely get that and sticking with king donald sutherland and jaden martell have signed on for an adaptation of the short story mr harrigan's phone for blumhouse oh have i read that one it was in the 2020 if it bleeds 
then I probably short stories have. compilation. I've read so much Ed, Stephen King. The story follows a young boy who befriends a retired billionaire ma- named Mr. Harrigan, which they befriend through him helping him with his iPhone. When the billionaire dies, the teen finds that the old guy plopped his phone into his pocket before he passed away. And he starts to get messages from beyond the grave from his friend. Mm, sounds very Stephen King. It's it, it's it, it, I've read this one and it's a really good short story. And the film is going to be written and directed by John Lee Hancock, who okay. gave us Blind Side and Saving Mr. Banks. And it's got a stand-by-me kind of vibe to it. It's that kind of Stephen King story that isn't a direct horror. It's just like a... It's a spiritual journey and adolescence movie. I'm excited for it from like John Lee Hancock being behind it. He's a quality director and writer. Yeah. So this will get released in 2022. And it's another Stephen King adaptation that I'm looking forward to. So talking of casting, Matthew Vaughan has added Ariana DeBose to enter the Henry Cavill action pick Argyle. Now, we spoke about this and we seem to have determined that it's going straight to Apple. Yes, uh, Apple have... Um, done a huge investment to nab the rights to that one whether it'll get a short limited cinema release beforehand we don't know yet but it's another one that they're adding onto the apple slate which a means that i get excited about it because everything from apple is glorious have you watched foundation yet by the way not yet i'm getting around to that after i've finished with what is my um neat thing today okay so i'll I'll mention my neat thing later, but I'll get around to Foundation once I finish with this series. Uh, but Apple have also won the bidding war for the John Watts directed thriller that we mentioned last week, yeah. which is produced and starring George Clooney and Brad Pitt. The two low wolf fixers assigned to the same job is all that we know about the story. And uh, yeah, Apple won a huge bidding war between like nine different, different distributors. It seems like Apple have all the money to throw at anything at this point in time. Yeah, they just need to release, a I don't know, a new phone every year. And I think it pays for foundation. <laughs> really? Do, do, do people buy their phones? I, I hadn't noticed. <laughs> I believe they're popular. Um, Stallone's new director's cut of Rocky Four has got a release date. I just noticed the trailer dropped this week. Yeah, the new cut delivers 40 minutes of unseen footage. And gets a one-night-only cinema release in the US on November the 11th with a Q&A broadcast live to some venues across the US. No international release plan is announced just yet, but I suspect that we'll get a one-night-only showing of the film with the pre-recorded Q&A tagged onto the end of it. And it's also going to pop up on Home Rental on the 12th of November. I'm intrigued with this. Yeah, we talked about it when it was mentioned. I like the Rocky series to a degree. It's just that the fourth one, I've never had the love for it that other people have because I think that it feels dated. It's the one out of the whole series of films that feels like it belongs in the era that it came from. Yeah. So a new edit could do this wonders to make it make it fit with the rest of the series and make it not just be a flag-waving East versus West patriotic film. It was, for me, uh, the lowest common denominator. I mean, I'm not even going to mention Rocky Five, but... Um... It, it was the end of the era for me. I I love Rocky. I think it's it's a superb film. I put it in in my my top listings of one of my favourite films of all time. Rocky two is enjoyable and perfectly carries on yeah. on the series. Rocky three is when it started to venture into uh, into it lost that that realistic touch which had been prominent in the first two movies. Then Rocky four blew it out of the water, and I had zero yeah. interest on it when it came out. Um, I didn't like the politics behind it. Subsequent watchings, it just feels silly. You know, it has yeah. that montage sequence where he's training in the snow, which is it's usually a song. It's three songs, I believe, 
that he, yep. he, uh, <laughs> he, he, he works out to. And then, of course, there is the ridiculous robot, which, again, seriously, seriously dates it. However, we do know that the thing that will be missing from the director's cut of Rocky Four is the robot. It's the robot, yep. Uh, which uh, the, the creator of the robot said in an interview uh, in recent years, uh, when hearing that he was going to get removed for a special director's cut, that he thinks that Stallone's done that so he doesn't have to pay the robot any um, licensing rights because he's actually a me- the robot is a member of the Screen Actors Guild. <laughs> so, so or any, any use a of him crap means idea. that <laughs> he needed yeah, to he, go. He, he was a crap idea. Um, Sister Act Three, because why, why not? not? Has got Tim Federley to direct and Maduri Sekar, who wrote Evil Eye to write the third instalment for Disney. Whoopi Goldberg will be back, reprising the role as Dolores, the ex-nightclub singer who went into hiding as a nun. Plot details completely under wraps. Federley, for those who don't know, created the high school musical, the series. So he has form for comedy musical approaches. And it is, let's be honest, it's a it's a perfect Disney Plus piece of fodder. Yeah, tap into some of the old nostalgia, but also bring something that will bring the new crowd across. If you like Sister Act, I'm not a huge fan, yeah, but I know plenty of people who are. And it's enough for them to get excited. What does get me excited, though, Babylon 5 is in production for a new TV series. Yeah. Now, for those of you who probably have only heard of Babylon 5 through the through the myths of time, there were two science fiction series which kind of opened around the same time. Deep Space Nine, the Star Trek continuation, and Babylon 5. Babylon 5 was a small budget, but big idea series. And if it had had the budget that... Deep Space Nine had, then I think it would have been much more highly recognised. Created by J.M. Straczynski, who comic fans will know, penned uh, Spider-Man for a good deal of time. Um, Fantastic Four for a good deal. uh, Fantastic Four, Supreme for for Ultimates. He basically wrote, I think uh, Neil Gaiman actually wrote an episode, but wrote almost every episode of it, and it felt absolutely epic. And as I said, it was one of the first series to rely highly and solely on CGI, which now makes it very, very dated, and 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 was pretty low budget, but had some expansive ideas about about the nature of the galaxy and, and our place in it. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to this, and I think it's yeah. it's um, it's interesting that they're going to be picking up Babylon Five with a new cast, from what I believe, because I think a lot of the yeah. cast have passed away now. Uh, and I think it's it's uh, it's a, it's a welcome return, and I think you know if it. It can get over the, some of the difficulties it had, which was was purely to do with with how much was being spent on the show. I think it could can move forward and be something special. I welcome it. J. N. Straczynski created Babylon Five. He had the concept initially of the five series story arc, a continuous story. So it wasn't episodic. It was it was always building to something and flowing and evolving throughout the five years. Um, and he's all, always been very much engaging. With his fan base, he, way back before Twitter, etc., back on Usenet groups, he used to post and reply to any comments. And now on Twitter, he's one of the best creators on there for engaging with the fan base. And it was from him himself this week that we found all the details. In a very long Twitter thread, he confirmed that the CW approached him with the idea and they agreed to let him have full creative control. He will be involved in every episode. The show will be a full reboot akin to Westworld or Battlestar Galactica, where he gets to reflect on today's issues and show them in a sci-fi sci-fi aspect. His reason for not doing it as a continuation of the original Babylon 5, in his words, 
Half the cast are still stubbornly on the other side of the rim. Too many of the cast have passed away. He can't continue their stories without them because for him, Andreas Katsoulis is Jakar. Yeah. And you could have the character Jakar no longer be in it, but you can't have any reference to that character to do that legacy any justice. All the cast, Peter Jurassic, no one else could play the role of Londo Malari. Yeah. No one can play the role of Delenn better than um, Mira Fallen. You can't recast these. So it's going to be a whole new story with a whole new range of cast using the themes that Babylon 5 had, the storytelling aspects of Babylon 5 and reflecting on modern society. I am so excited. I'm a huge Babylon 5 fan. Yes. I have rewatched the series multiple times. And after this news broke, I straight away got disc one of series one, popped it in my drive and watched the first four episodes again. And I'm going to work through the whole show again. I love the storytelling. I think Straczynski's, I think he's undervalued as a writer at times. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 um, it did the change lead for Clint Eastwood. I mean, he's done some, yeah. he did, he, he rebooted Thor uh, and part of that reboot he was on the original draft of the Thor movie. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, other than Babylon 5, he's, he's, a, he's a solid writer, solid comic book writer. I loved his, his uh, for, let's say, for Marvel's Ultimates, uh, The Power it was a fantastic, fantastic series, uh, Supreme Power. So here's hoping for some more rich storytelling of sci-fi nature. Another TV series that might be of interest. Uh, I don't know whether you've heard about the Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Yeah, well, as you know, my favourite film of all time, and yeah. apparently there is going to be a series that deals with Butch and Sundance while they were still part of the Wild Bunch, but more about their lives south of the border. Yeah. So I'm always cautious. I mean, there's been so many times and people have talked about a, a Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid uh, uh, to be remade, which one of those films will be a folly to remake because it's pitch perfect. Yeah. And it would just be a cash in. I know there's been there's been a couple of TV movies, one absolutely appalling one, which is supposed to be the truth behind Butch and Sundance. Um, so I think there's always there's always room to to look at it and, and and explore the world around it. But you know the the movie is is the classic icon for for many reasons. But you know the story of Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid is an intriguing one, and the movie, uh, as it says right at the beginning, most of this is true, and lots of it. Yeah. On. So I'm always interested to see where it goes. And and in final TV news, Train Spotting may be getting a TV spin-off, according to Robert Carlyle. Okay, I can I can see how they could do that. Well, it's it's gonna it's apparently gonna be adapting the 2016 novel The Blade Artist, which focused on the now reformed character of Begbie, who was moved to California but then is drawn back to Scotland due to tragic events, and he has to confront his past once more. Um, in his words. Irvin and myself have been chatting quite a lot recently with a couple of excellent producers in London about continuing the train spotting story. As you know, there was another book called The Blade Artist, which is just entirely about Begbie and his mad story. It's still in the early moments, but it's looking pretty good that this will happen eventually. Don't count me in. I think there's plenty of room to explore the train spotting universe, for want of a better <laughs> yep. term. Uh, and, and why not? Uh, talking of universes, James Gunn, as we know, is reportedly planning to shoot the Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special uh, along the same times as he's doing volume three uh, of Guardians. So responding to a fan on Twitter who asked if the uh, holiday special would introduce a new character, just like with Boba Fett in the Star Wars holiday special, Gunn confirmed that, yes, this project will introduce, in his subjective and admittedly often opinionated way, introducing one of the greatest MCU characters of all time. Let the speculation run wild and begin. <laughs> Galactus. 
<laughs> uh, yeah, it could. Be. I mean, it's it, as he says, it, it's, a, it's a character that he thinks is one of the greatest MCU characters of all time. So it could be, you know, it could be Adam Warlock. We know that's happening. Could be Nova. I'm, I'm assuming more with with Gunn. It'll be some character that's kind of off kilter. <laughs> so who knows? But let the speculation. Silver Surfer. <laughs> That'd be nice. Yeah. Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> I'm going Silver Surfer or Galactus. I'm, I'm, I'm saying them now. Let's see what plays yeah, out. <laughs> okay, yeah, Silver Surfer could be definitely one of the greatest comic book characters of all time in the MCU. So, yeah, yeah. Let's have a go. And that is the news. Dun, 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 dun. And uh, <laughs> on Twitter, the Rev has just followed me back. Hey, okay, I hope you will join into the uh, film file. He's just, uh, he's just thanked thanked me for sorting them out last night. Yay! <laughs> oh, this is, this is becoming a great weekend for me. I'm loving this. <laughs> still with us, still enjoying the film file. And if you're a fan, why not become a subscriber? Head over to your favourite podcast platform, find the show, hit the subscribe button, and remember to hit the like button. Because deep down inside, we're just egotistical, fragile flowers. And you don't want to see us cry. <laughs> Honestly, you don't want to see us cry. I wouldn't say that. Most of them probably do. Oh, maybe you do. And if you want to know more about the film file, then there is so many routes to discovering the true nature of the film file empire. You can follow us on Twitter at Filmfile UK, Instagram, Filmfile UK. If you interact with us on Spotify and listen to us through Spotify, we're going to be posing questions every week on there for you to answer the multiple choice and like engage with us in some way. Uh, there's also, you'll see in the description, a link to a place that you can leave an audio message for us. And we will listen to them. And the best ones, if you want it to be in the show, just say it's fine for the show. We will include in upcoming broadcasts. <laughs> I like that. Or you can email us with anything that you want. We've said this before. I'm happy to be an agony, agony uncle to the Film Geek community out there. Email us with anything that you want, podcast at filmfile.uk. Hey, Andy, we have our 100th episode coming up very, very shortly. We do. We need to consider something really super spectacular to do for our 100th episode, don't we? Yeah, so if anyone's got any ideas out there, please let us know, because we are struggling. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think it'd be great if a lot of our listeners submitted maybe their top three, top three picks of films that they love yeah uh with a little comment about each of them you know so email that in or leave the video audio message like i've said in the description there should be a link that you can find go to that link you can leave us an audio message and we can include any of them within our 100th episode we can make that 100th episode a celebration of everything that we all love about film i like it and oh by the way hello salt lake city yeah, if you're in Salt Lake City, please, 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 please leave us an audio message. <laughs> so, as you know, each episode we do a deep dive into a film that we consider classic or just worth talking about. We've covered such things as 1941, Escape from New York. You name the genre, we've covered it, and if we haven't, then we certainly will do. We're going back in time, not in a time travel kind of way, we're going back to 1956 to an absolute classic science fiction film. It came from Metro-Golden-Mare. It was one of the biggest productions in science fiction that had been seen way back in the 50s. It was inspired, strangely enough, by William Shakespeare's The Tempest. And this film is Forbidden Planet. 
Sir, we're being radar scanned. United Planets Cruiser C-57D, J.J. Adams commanding. Who are you? Morbius of the Bellerophon. Oh, Dr. Morbius, my orders are to survey the situation on Altair IV. Commander, if you sat down on this planet, I warn you that I cannot be answerable for the safety of your ship or your crew. When you reach the Forbidden Planet, you will meet Dr. Morbius, played by Walter Pidgeon. The doctor is sole owner of this fabulous world. Anne Francis is his alluring daughter, Alta, who has never seen a young man till she meets Commander Adams, played by talented Leslie Nielsen. Not in. Didn't bring my bathing suit. What's a bathing suit? Oh, murder. You will meet a charming character in The Robot, able to produce, on order, ten tons of lead or a slinky evening gown. Always at your service. It must be the loveliest, softest thing you've ever made for me. And fit in all the right places, with lots and lots of star sapphires. Star sapphires take a week to crystallize properly. Would diamond or emeralds do? So, see if this sounds familiar. In the 23rd century, the United Planet starship, C-57D, reaches the distant planet of Altair IV to determine the fate of an expedition of an expedition that was sent there 20 years earlier. Dr. Edward Mobius, one of the expedition scientists, warns the relief ship not to land, saying he cannot guarantee their safety. But the commander, John J. Adams, ignores his warning. Upon the planet, the crew meet Dr. Mobius, played by Walter Pidgeon, and the trusty robot known as Robbie. Sound familiar? Sound like a famous television series? Well, you'd be right. More than any other movie, this movie influenced Star Trek. Right down to the fact of it being a militaristic naval design uh, uh, crew exploring the universe. The fact that they go to a different planet and the fact that it just feels in so many ways the precursor to Star Trek, directed by Fred M. Wilcox, as I said, starred Walter Pidgeon, Anne Francis, and Leslie Nielsen. Yes, Leslie Nielsen, before he went down the comedy route, was a leading man, and he plays John J. Adams, the commander of this particular space mission. If you've not had chance to see Forbidden Planet, you would be surprised, because it still holds up really, really well. The effects, from what I remember, were done by Disney at the time, and there was a uh, an animated creature in it that does have a particular feel of being a Disney character. It's, it's gloriously colourful. It's one of those rare science fiction films from the 50s that's not just set in outer space, but is not silly and deals with a, a, a proper, proper science fiction element, the idea of, of, of a monster created from the id. And it has scope and style that you've seen played out in many, many science fiction films, as I said, from Star Trek right through to Star Wars. And because of that, it feels amazingly fresh. Yes, it is nostalgic. Yes, it is a throwback to the 1950s. And gender politics aside, it can't help but be a film of its era. But it's a glorious, glorious science fiction film that, as I said, still stands up beautifully made, beautifully uh, designed, and a huge influence on what we're seeing today. Andy, your love or no love for Forbidden Planet? I've got a lot of love for Forbidden Planet. Um, I, 
I jumped onto this quite late on, and it was through, again, I've mentioned before how BBC Two used to do sci-fi movies, classics, seasons, and that was when I first saw Forbidden Planet. And straight away, my love of Star Trek made me love this from the start, because I was just like, this is a prototype Star Trek. This is everything that Star Trek was. The film was made at a time when most sci-fi was sneered at and considered dumb entertainment on film. Low-budget B-movie flicks. There were standout films, but generally, they were just creature features, aliens from another world kind of things. Films such as Forbidden Planet came along to show that the genre could be more adult and serious. Sci-fi as a genre in novel format around the time was tackling political themes and social themes in Fahrenheit 451, 1984, and Huxley's Brave New World. But in film, it was just popcorn entertainment about invaders from Mars. Forbidden Planet was amongst one of the first and maybe was the first, to take the tale to another world outside the solar system. It was no longer Mars or Venus or Jupiter. It was way out into unknown, uncharted territories. And to do so, it had to create a believable, yet utterly alien environment to set the tale in. And that's where you've mentioned the Disney animators who created the id, uh, the creature that causes problems for this lost colony. But also... The matte paintings, the design work, the model making um, for the great machine which lies under the planet, and which ha- there's a great shot where you see the interior of the machine with like channels going down into oblivion, and there's just a pathway across it that the cast are walking across on a beautiful matte shot. Which um, I saw an interview with Leslie Nielsen where he said that they actually got them to walk from one end of a studio lot to the other filming them from above in order to get the distance that they walk before they could map it in to this painting. And that gives the absolute grandiose nature of this design. MGM wanted to make this the very first A film. No B movie ideas here. They wanted it to be a serious film. And so they treated it completely with respect from start to finish, making sure the budget would allow it to be given the adaptation that it needed. And when I say adaptation, as we've mentioned, it's an adaptation of The Tempest, a Shakespeare story, a classic story. And that makes this film serve as one of those examples that shows that you, you often hear people say, oh, Shakespeare, it's it's dated. Uh, it's for an older audience. You can respect Shakespeare, but it's not really relevant to today. But you can adapt any Shakespeare story and give it relevance for modern audiences through sci-fi or through action-adventure. Hell, in recent years, The Lion King has shown that Shakespeare is still relevant today. Yeah, yeah. I loved this. It was strange when I started watching this for the very first time because by that point, I was aware of Leslie Nielsen through Airplane, through Naked Gun, through Police Police Squad, through Repossessed. He was a spoof comedy actor. And so it was jarring to me when I first watched this that, hang on, is this supposed to be a comedy? Because that's Leslie Nielsen. But no, this was Leslie Nielsen when he was a serious actor. And he was the lead role. And he's the archetype, again, that characters like Captain Kirk was drawn from. He was the stoic, heroic lead captain of the ship, who's also a potential romantic interest with the the one female on the planet. Everything in the DNA of this film became the DNA for future sci-fi exploration shows, especially Star Trek. Everything to do with Star Trek is in this film. 
yeah, I mean, you can even see it straight through to to Alien and and Prometheus to that matter. Uh, and, and why it's, it feels timeless is, as you said, the production values are absolutely fantastic. The the scope of the film, some of the ideas of the film are, are pretty huge for the for the time, which which makes it into a proper science fiction film. As you said, a lot of a lot of the movies at that particular uh, time. There are a few outstanding ones, but you were they were your mission to Mars as mission to Venus's, and they were they were low budget with some silly looking alien, uh, and not much in the way of weight. This carries weight, and maybe the only thing that sort of lets it down is is a, a sort of fifty sensibility because you know the the crew is an all male crew, uh, they feel like uh, soldiers in space and, and feel like a platoon movie, but in the same way that that Star Trek to a degree felt like a, a naval movie you know Horatio Hornblow is often cited as being uh, as being a, a Star Trek influence but it deals with with some some incredibly clever and and in, ingenious science fiction concepts and that's what gives it its 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 longevity as well as it looks absolutely fantastic and to say that it comes from the 1950s you can watch this and and, st- and it still feels a sense of relevance to it despite yeah. every uh, the the some of the uh the more obvious nods to to the 50s the the, the spaceship look, looking like a flying saucer for instance but it is an absolutely incredible uh and beautifully designed film and holds up very well so much so that it's been talked about many many times to be remade and we talked about earlier we talked about um j michael straczynski had a, an original idea to do uh the film as a trilogy starting yeah. with what happened to the lost crew in the first movie which i've read the script for was was very good the second film would be forbidden planet and then the third film would have been uh, a sequel to it that never happened there's been uh mentions that james cameron was going to do uh, a remake it's it's an ideal film to to be remade with a with a modern eye and do something fresh with it and and still have the all the elements that worked in it but but bring it bring it with a, a modern sensibility uh, one of the most iconic characters in the film the one that everyone always remembers is the character and it is a character of robbie the robot yeah at a time where sci-fi movies basically to make a robot they just slapped some boxes together and had a man stumbling about in a suit and acting ridiculous they they created what was felt like a real character the the thought of everything inside the glass head you can see gyroscopes which are all to make sure that the robot keeps its balance everything was thought through to make it look at it and just go oh it's not just a silly character the structure and there's there's believability behind this the asimov's three laws were implemented to make sure that he had that retained robotic personality and he went on to inspire robots in entertainment for decades to come. You can draw parallels to robots within the Star Wars universe to this, but also the robot from Lost in Space was hugely inspired yeah. by Robbie the Robot. And also Robbie cameoed in one episode of the classic Lost in Space series where he battled the robot from Lost in Space in a memorable moment. Uh, the robot pop himself popped up on TV shows and films for guest appearances, some named some casually just dropped in and not referenced, but just there for the next couple of decades, including in the 80s when you can see him in the background of one scene of Gremlins. Yes. 
Um, and the robot himself was inducted into the Robot Hall of Fame in 2004. Robbie the Robot holds a special plate in any sci-fi geek's heart and always will do because it was the first time that a robot was... Re- well, if we ignore Metropolis to a degree because Metropolis was a huge inspiration for later robots, but Robbie was the one that added personality to robots for the first time and really made them more than just side characters in a film. He was a central part of the film. Yeah, so much so that he had a, a spin-off kind of movie called The Invisible Boy, which is not related in any way to Forbidden Planet, but it, it is Robbie making that appearance. Yeah, an absolutely iconic design. And that's what gives the film its credibility. Uh, it's it's It was a thought-out science fiction film. It wasn't a throw-together B-movie. It has an elegance and design to it, which which make it the classic that it is. And as I said, there's there's a lot going on in this film. This film has a proper science fiction raison d'etre. It exists to tell a bigger story rather than guys going to a different planet and fighting a monster. This is why it's a classic. It's a timeless, timeless story. And I, I for one wouldn't wouldn't mind seeing a new version of forbidden planet because i think it, it's it's such a strong strong story that it can it can uh, it it can be retold without losing or, or or damning the original in any way you can add to it rather than than try to copy it and that's forbidden planet andy can we find it anywhere if we want to watch it uh, not at the moment it, it it's it's a one that pops up on terrestrial tv regularly so it will eventually be on BBC iPlayer, I imagine. Yeah. But at this point in time, you can find it on the streaming services, but it's for rental fees or for purchase fees only. I did have a Blu-ray of it, which I, I gave to a friend that never got back. And it's just reminded me this last week that I've chase them up and get that I've back. got to chase it up <laughs> and get it back. because it's certainly, certainly worth seeing. There's also on YouTube, there's a really good 30, approximately 30 minutes um, behind the scenes documentary. Um, about the making of the film with interviews with uh, a few of the cast and um, some of the creators behind it. Well worth checking out to give some insights into how seriously they all approach the movie. And that's Forbidden Planet, and that's our deep dive for the week. So, as I said, I've not had a chance to see anything over the last week and highly disappointed that I've missed Bond. Andy, spoiler free, give us your review for No Time to Die. James Bond... It's the most valuable asset this country has. You gave up everything for her. I could be speaking to my own reflection. When her secret finds its way out, it'll be the death of you. You don't know what this is. He's going to kill millions. Now your enemy is my enemy. Why would I betray you? Come on, Bond. Where the hell are you? Fate draws us back together. So stay in your lane. Only your skills die with your body. Mine will survive long after I'm gone. History isn't kind to men who play God. If we don't do this, there will be nothing left to save. This was your choice. 
So, No Time to Die. It's the 25th entry in the official Bond series and the fifth outing for Daniel Craig. No Time to Die draws upon the threads of the previous four films to tie up loose ends and give a final outing for Craig before the franchise is given another makeover with a new lead. It starts with a flashback to Madeline Swan's childhood. We see the events that were mentioned in a throwaway line when she first met Bond in the previous film. A home intruder who killed her mother, who Swan shot. And we discover there's more to the story than she previously revealed. The film then shifts to events immediately following Spectre, Bond and Swan in Matera, Italy. James visiting Vesper's grave once more before he can fully move on with Swan. However, an ambush by Spectre agents leaves Bond to mistrust Swan and they separate. Five years later, events transpire that draw the pair together, as well as Felix Leitner, Blofeld and a new 007. And a conspiracy is threatening the world in a major way. To say more would be packed with spoilers. And this film has a variety of twists and turns throughout. The oft-commented-on runtime flies by 2 hours 40, which feels much less than what it actually is. And it's certainly the sign of a strong film when you can sit through 2 hours 40 and look at your watch at the end of it going, what? Really? Uh, From the opening moments right to the final act, I was immersed in the rich splendour of the adventure, which plays on themes of all of Craig's run, drawing threads together that have been left hanging from each of the films, as well as echoes of earlier films in the series. Parallels are drawn at times with Honor Majesty's Secret Service, even if the story isn't the same, and the score by Hans Zimmer reflects on those early themes to great effect. Sumptuous locations, as you would expect in any Bond film, shot exquisitely by Linus Sandron, who won awards for his work on La La Land, so certainly knows how to make a beautiful-looking film. And it's an experience one which I relish the chance to explore again. Most of all, though, this is Daniel Craig's film. It's his final outing in the role, and he owns it from start to finish. Tears were shed, stories were wrapped up, and whilst you can enjoy this film on its own, the recent revisit of all of Craig-era films leading up to the release made me pick up on so much story detail and thematic elements that had carried throughout the whole films, making even the weaker films, Quantum of Solace and Spectre, seem much better as a result. The five films together play out like a one long tale. A genuine first for the franchise, which usually plays each film as a lone event. I could talk about the cast, but we already know how good everyone from the previous outings is. Craig, again, on finest form. Jeffrey Wright is a marvellous lightener. Ben Wishaw makes a fabulous cue. Ray Fiennes encapsulates the early essence of M, and so on. New to the series is Rami Malek, whose eerie and menacing villain is also quite subdued and calm. A somewhat classic Bond villain with a lair on a remote island, again drawing upon the earlier film series. If anything bad could be said, it's that I wanted more of him in the film, but he was just one piece of this majestic chessboard of a film. No Time to Die is easily within my top five Bond films of all time. If Skyfall was the perfect homage to everything that Bond encapsulated, this is the perfect sequel to Skyfall. It sits alongside Casino Royale and Skyfall as the pinnacles of the Craig era, and it's indeed far better than the final outing that previous Bond actors had. See it now on the biggest screen you can find. So fantastic, Andy. I am, as you know, gagging, absolutely gagging at the bit to to see Bond. I just can't wait, and I'm just avoiding every spoiler out there. You're also going to be talking to us about the new Jake Gyllenhaal and Antoine Fuqua film, The Guilty. Now, I think you said at the top of the program, this has got a, a, a cinema release as well as going straight to Netflix, is it? Yes, it had a, a two-week 
uh, cinema exclusivity before it landed on Netflix this past week. 911, what is the address of your emergency? I don't know. Give me the phone. Who's that? Is there someone with you? Yes. Is the person who would know you called us? No. He put me in the back of the van and I can't see anything. Have you been abducted? Yes. Hello? Do you hear me? Do you hear me? Send units right now. I need a better location. No. Follow it. Emily? I'm gonna die. No, nobody's gonna die. Just tell me where you are. Emily? So the guilty sees Jake Gyllenhaal team up with director Antoine Fuqua once more in an adaptation of a Danish film of the same name. It focuses on the early hours in an LAPD 911 call centre and Gyllenhaal plays Officer Joe Baylor, who's been reassigned to man the calls after being taken off active duty in the run-up to his trial for an unspecified incident eight months ago. The court appearance is due that very morning and Joe is struggling to keep calm when responding to 911 calls, his mind obviously distracted. However, when a call comes in from an abducted woman named Emily, Joe works everything that he can to locate her and find out what has happened. Finding a connection to distract from his own worries and maybe getting a bit too connected to the incident. It's a tight and it's a pacey film. The guilty plays out more or less in real time and Hall is our central focus throughout. We never leave the call centre. We never see the events playing out that the phone calls are coming out about. We see video screens of an out- a raging fire that is causing distractions in the service, but we don't see anything outside that call centre. We only know what Officer Baylor knows, and as such, we are gripped and invested in the plight of Emily and the circumstances around her abduction. Hall is on fine form as ever, showing once again how he's genuinely one of the strongest dramatic actors in the industry today. He's previously worked with this director on Southpaw. The pairing of the two works so well, and this is certainly one of that director's stronger pieces. His general CV is a mixed bag with films like Olympus Has Fallen and King Arthur, balanced alongside films like Training Day and the recent Magnificent Seven remake, which was a lot better than a lot of people give it credit for. In the very tight 90 minutes, there's a lot to grip you through this, and the mysterious reason Joe is on trial holds a lot of relevance to today's societal issues. But most of all, this is a tour de force performance by Gyllenhaal, who demonstrates multiple emotions with depth skill throughout. I think you've sold me on that one, Andy. What I didn't know is a remake of a 2018 uh, Danish drama of the same name, but I think you've absolutely, absolutely sold it on me. And, it, and more so the fact that it's, you know, Anton going back to the strength he had on training day because he can go off on tangents and make stuff, which is a, uh, which is a bit light, but this sounds like, well, I'm in. And then finally, you've got for us... Bingo Hell. I look around this beautiful community of yours. You know what I see? Each and every one of you has a big dream. We all have that one thing we still yearn for. They say money can't buy you happiness. I disagree. Looks like a goddamn casino. Welcome to the game. Bingo Hell is a first-time feature from Gigi Sol Juero, who has previously demonstrated her horror chops in short segments in films such as ABCs of Death 2.5 and Bloody Bits. It's another film in the series of Welcome to the Blumhouse horror collaboration between Amazon and Blumhouse, and it's the first out the gate for this second run, and it's sadly underwhelming. It's set in the barrio of Oak Springs. A group of stubborn and somewhat eccentric elderly characters reside. 
Gentrification has threatened but never been able to take hold of the community. The kind of leader of the community is Lupita, whose strong mind keeps the others in check. But when the society's beloved bingo hall comes under new ownership, with the prizes changing from things like a free haircut or some vegetables from the local grocers to thousands of dollars life-changing experiences she suspects the new owner is maybe up to something a little sinister bingo hell is an interesting concept but it's poorly executed the social commentary of gentrification on communities is a good solid foundation for any horror and having it literally be about throwing money at people to convince them you're their friend in here via the overly charismatic new bingo hall owner played to scenery chewing effect by richard brake whilst destroying their lives and pushing them to their death, could have really worked well. But sadly, it's hammered home far too bluntly. And whilst the film struggles around it to decide if it's a serious horror or is it a quirky comic black comedy, the direction seems off-kilter to the dramatic tone. It tries to walk the divide of surreality and seriousness, but fails entirely as it falls to one side or the other unevenly throughout. Horror-wise, fans of Splat and Gore will be more than happy. Guillermo certainly knows how to hit with maximum effect, but it's the storytelling that lets the whole affair down. And you get the feeling that this would have made quite a nice short film. It just didn't need to be stretched out to a full length feature. This has been the thing with Bloomhouse, and, and you, you mentioned it, is that the, the concepts are great. But with, with the last series, it just, I don't know, just fell short. It's, it, what they do with their movies is sometimes hit and miss. And that's okay because they've got they've got such a, a huge amount of releases. But I don't know I, they, they've not been able to do that with with the Bloomhouse uh, TV movies for whatever reason they they consistently fall short. But as we've said last time that we spoke about the Welcome to the Bloomhouse series last year, what we what I do appreciate about them is that this is always first time feature directors being given a chance to showcase what they yeah. can do. They've usually come from short films. And so I've got respect for what they're doing. Yeah, yeah. The experiment's there, isn't it? It's not yeah. if, the, if the end results haven't been that strong. Yeah. So um, that's your reviews. What, or does Bond just dominate the cinema for another week? What are, what are we uh, looking forward to seeing? So cinemas, obviously Bond is going to be carrying over for more weeks. But for younger families, and I quite enjoyed the first one, Adam's Family 2 lands this weekend. Is that a cinema release or is that um, is that a split release? It's a cinema release in the UK. It's only got the split release in the US. So that's one that I'm really looking forward yeah, to seeing. Yeah, I didn't mind the first film at all. Absolutely didn't mind it. It had the spirit of the Adam's Family layered throughout it. And it had the look and visual style of the original comic strip. On Now TV and Sky, Voyagers and No Sudden Move are the two films that are dropping this week. On Netflix, There's Someone Inside Your House gives us some scary chills for October. And also The Lighthouse finally lands on Netflix. Well worth checking out if you didn't see that last year. Yeah, I didn't. I've been looking forward to finally catching up with it. And over on Amazon, Joker lands this week. And also a film called Wild Mountain Time which is looking like it's going to be worth checking out. Yeah, I've heard some stuff about that. There's going to be a, a good few for us to pick from to talk about next week. So the one thing that I have seen, I've still not seen Bond. <laughs> <laughs> the one thing I have seen and I did manage to catch up on was uh, this week's What If. Uh, it took me a few days to, to get round to it. Um, my son watched it and it was on in the background and I paid very little attention to it. That's how bad I was feeling and so I thought I'll take the opportunity I'll watch it while I'm alone in the house and and uh, revisit it properly so this week's uh, episode eight of Marvel's What If is entitled What If 
Ultron 1. Follow me. Enter the multiverse of infinite possibilities. We've all lost so much, and I'm not sure there's anything left worth fighting for. What if Ultron won? Right from the get-go, I've got to say, this episode featured some of the most awe-inspiring and beautiful animation of the series so far. I mean, we've seen some some pretty cool stuff, but yeah. um, and the anim animation team have, have worked wonders. But this episode had a, a style to it and a fluency to it. To say this is a, a small screen representation that reminded me of Akira, of all things, I thought the scope was absolutely stunning. So. What we got this week is what would happen if Ultron had, had snagged the vibranium body of the Vision before the Avengers managed to reach the Vision and basically popped himself into that body. And so instead of, as we saw in uh, Avengers Age of Ultron, instead of losing it to the creation of the Vision, it turns out that the Avengers saved more than this world. They are successfully completed in their mission back in the day. Now, with this what if, they fail and Ultron wins basically nukes the planet in his quest to cleanse is that how we how we see it andy yeah to, to cleanse the planners from the scourge of humanity so this episode starts in an, an apocalyptic wasteland that used to be moscow and features around clint barton and natasha romanoff as they search for a way to finally defeat ultron in a world where he he successfully implant implemented himself into vision's body and the consequences of what that means. So we get Thanos turning up, we get Ultron basically becoming aware, see him take his mission out into the galaxy, and then we hang on to, and spoilers if you've not seen it, the multiverse. This was a pretty big episode. Now I've complained, nah, complaints may be too strong a word. I've mentioned a few times that I wanted the episodes to be more self-contained. This time we've got uh, a two-parter, and how it ties in that again it's a marvel thing there was a plan all along to tell a bigger story and we think we know where well we've got a pretty good idea where it's going to go you you didn't think i'd like this but i absolutely loved it i thought this was this was a really fantastic piece of of, of i'm going to say cinema rather than just tv yeah i thought it explored the relationship between clint and natasha I think it explored why we are, no pun intended, watching this particular watcher <laughs> and his interest in the world. And and I thought it, it created a, a a reason for the what if universe to, to exist. So um, my thoughts are, I thought it was a superb episode. I, I really enjoyed this uh, episode because as a fan of the comics, I know that this watcher is so different to other watchers all the other watchers simply watch but uatu has always bordered on that interfering and indeed you know in the classic fantastic four coming of galactus he directly interfered to bring a warning to earth the watcher here is finally showing himself to be this different watcher he's a rebel of the watchers he's he he's held to account by much of the watcher tribunal 
for breaking the oath of just watching. And in this, he wants to interfere throughout. And by the end of it, you can see that he's going to get directly involved. This is also an episode that is building up to what we speculated on quite early on, that there's going to be a Guardians of the Multiverse and it was going to bring the characters from the previous episodes all together to try to defeat an unknown multiversal menace, which we now know to be an Infinity Stones-powered Ultron. Um, this reminded me, and I've mentioned to this this to you off air, this reminded me of the Exiles comic, uh, yeah. which came out, started in the 90s. There's still been variations of it over recent years, but when it was originally created, it was to take some cast-off characters from ended universes and put them together to go and save fractured timelines from falling apart. And this was like the start of Exiles. You could easily retitle this to, like, from what if, to Exiles if it goes to season two, if this is the approach that they're going for. And I'm all for that, because the Exiles comic book used to occasionally hop back into timelines that had started off in a what if comic, which as a fan of what if throughout, it was like absolute joy for me. And so that's why I'm loving that the starting to bring it all together. It's exciting me to see what the second part does. I hope it sticks the landing with this story, but like you say, it's very cinematic and the animation in this one is possibly the best that they've had so far. It was, it was stunning. It was beautiful. I mean, I, 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 I I'm not just talking it up. I thought it reminded me something of, of, of Akira. I thought it was, uh, uh... I thought it was incredibly cinematic, especially uh, uh, the Watchers' fight with Ultron that that jumped through different uh, different dimensions. Yeah. And I love the little Easter egg to uh, Steve Rogers becoming president, which was uh, <laughs> now we know was an episode that they they couldn't they were going to do a West Wing episode yep. and and they they couldn't make it work. But so yeah, the, I, I thought you know it was it was clever, it was inventive, it was stylish, it was beautifully beautifully designed. It was a fu- a great episode. It looks like the series is going to wrap itself up in a very satisfactory way, and I'm I'm now awaiting the announcements of what season two is going when season two is going to land. I'm that excited about what if it, which you know when we got to that midpoint and there was a couple of episodes that I struggled with. I was yeah. worried that it ran out of steam too early, but it turns out you know what it was just that uneven middle section. Yeah, I mean it's it's a very bold. It's a bold series, and I, it always it always brings me back to what what is that? Well, who are the Marvel films aimed at? Now they become family audiences, and and the the main problem with a lot of comic geeks is is they grow up, <laughs> <laughs> and they expect comics to grow up with them, as they as you do with all entertainment. And I you know, same for Doctor Who. You know, let's not not forget Doctor Who is a, is a family TV series. It's yeah. never going to go into the dark places that we as adults would like it to explore because it's 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 aimed at eight year olds predominantly and 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 that's fine and but we do have as fans this expectation that as we get older and, and we become more sophisticated that the entertainment around us should do that rather than appeal to its target market yeah and and i think you know we we talk we've mentioned a few times you know that 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 marvel films have a tendency to be formulaic in a way and um you know boy the formula works and we enjoy the formula don't don't get me started on you know i'm i'm not not dissing it or dismantling it in any way it's, it's a formula that works and the best marvel films are when you you break the formula a little bit looking at, at winter soldier or um and, and civil war in particular but you know who who is this aimed at so if if 
you get some sort of snotty reviewer sort of damning the series. Remember that it's it's eight year old kids as well who are watching this and are absolutely being turned on to to storytelling and to Marvel characters and, and are investing in them and 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 not try to to make them into something that they're not because that's that's the target market for it. Yeah. But yeah, I had a, I had a thoroughly good time. I'm really looking forward to to the last episode. I think I think. Uh, it's been a brave series. Not everyone's landed. Uh, and hopefully the last episode, which we will review next week, will land again. And that's about it for this week. I can't believe I've made it through <laughs> through the show in one piece. Um, I have flagged a couple of times. And uh, boy, the outtakes will be me going, I don't know what I'm doing now. <laughs> but uh, we've made it to the end. But as ever, before we go, we have to tell you our neat thing, which is to say something that either Andy and I have enjoyed, loved, watched, ate, had a good time with what is our neat things for this week. And as ever, Andy goes first. So my neat thing for this week, uh, based on the comic series by Brian K. Vaughan and Pierre Guerra, a post-apocalyptic series which is showing on Hulu in the US and Disney Plus in international waters, and that is Why the Last Man. The story set in a world where a devastating virus has swiftly wiped out every being with a Y chromosome, except for Yorick Brown, who traverses this new world with his pet monkey, Ampersand, and the survivors around him are trying to restore some level of society. There are alterations to the show from the original graphic novel, but none too major. The basic theme is still there. The cast of characters are introduced in the very first episode, which is set the day leading up to the apocalyptic event and then the first couple of minutes of that event. And as far as first episodes go, it's a kicker. And I gave it a watch this week and I am in for the ride. This is fantastically acted. It's presented really well. It looks amazing on the screen. Why the Last Man is on Disney Plus for all you lovely people in the UK. Get on it. Get it watched. It's a great show. It's been the top of my viewing list all week as, as one of the shows I've got to get round to watching. I only read a couple of the original Vertigo book. I'm a big fan of Brian K. Vaughan. I think he's a fantastic writer. And I think I was waiting to, to get the collected edition and just never got round to it. So I'm, I'm very aware of the, of the premise. I know they've been talking about get, getting this made for some time. So looking forward yeah. to finally getting round to watch it. So uh, originally, my neat thing was going to be, I was going to mention that I would saw Secret Life of Walter Mitty again on TV. It's the first thing I've watched all week that I, I, I could sit through and thoroughly enjoyed. But I have pre-ordered, which is very unusual for me, a game. And it is, it is it's always, it's always a title which I always think undersells it, but like John Wick undersells what the movie is. And that's Alan Wake. This is a, a call out to a friend of the pod who, uh, who was one of our sponsors at one time, my friend Wesley introduced me to this game on PC and I would go around to his house and, and, and play it with him. And it was a, it was a clever game, fell into the horror genre. Uh, and at the time I was working on a script and, and Alan Wake became a big influence on that. It's a very cinematic and that's my favorite kind of game, kind of horror and action thriller about a, a troubled author, Alan Wake of the title, who embarks on a desperate journey uh, for his missing wife. And, and, uh, basically encounters um, supernatural horror and has to find a way to to make it to the end, as all, all good games are. Anyway, they recently announced that they were remastering it for uh, the PS5 and PS4, 
and I have pre-ordered it. I was hoping while I've still got another week of work that it would land this week. I don't think it lands for another week before I get it, even with Amazon Prime. But I am so looking forward to playing this game in a way that I have I've not been looking forward to playing a game since ooh, The Last of Us Part 2 came out. So uh, my neat thing is the expectation of receiving Alan Wake for the PS4. Fantastic. And that's it for this week. We'll be back with another episode, as ever, next week. Andy, much happening? Are you still recovering from Bond? <laughs> I'm still recovering. Um, my downtime this week is literally just going to be spent sleeping, I think. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's it's just work is busy, and that's exactly what I love. I love it. It's so good to see that we were right all along, and we've been proved right that people have a desperate need to come back to the cinema. For me, I don't know. It's... Uh, I was expecting to be back at work this week. I've got another week signed off. However, how I feel, I don't know. We're just going to play it by ear. But um, I, I'm looking forward to getting better. I'm looking forward to getting back into the cinema. So we'll see you again next week. Goodbye from me. And it is very quiet, much... please. I'm analysing. <laughs> <laughs>